Hello and welcome back to Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna. This is Soleil and Ramona Gaylord. So the earth has spun past the vernal equinox and we have finally entered the spring season. Soon hibernating animals will begin to appear and there's really hope of new life and regeneration in the air. We have a new Native American Secretary of the Interior, the first in Deb Holland and a new hope for conservation efforts in our country from biodiversity resolutions to bold climate agendas. So on that note, we have guest biologist, Dr. Bruce Beeler with us today to discuss the art of conservation and saving species. Bruce has spent the last half century of his life in conservation. He is a world famous ornithologist. He is a research, research associate for the bird division of Smithsonian Institution's Museum of Natural History Bruce worked for Conservation International, the Wildlife Conservation Society, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. He is the author of 12 books. Most importantly, he is our family friend. And he has actually spent a lot of time here in Telluride back in 2004 when he co-hosted the Papua New Guinea Mountain Film Festival. I was just a little girl, but I do remember at the time crying when Bruce left because he was just such a powerful presence. I do remember that as well. <laughs> So Bruce went to Williams College. He received his master's and PhD studying the behavioral ecology of the birds of paradise at Princeton. He is really the authority on New Guinea birds and actually wrote the guidebook, The Birds of New Guinea. So one of the many uber cool adventures of Bruce is that he discovered a new species of bird. Imagine that called the waddled smoky honey eater on his mission where he co-led a team of biologists from the remote Foya Mountains on the island of New Guinea. So they performed a biological assessment there. Beeler and his colleagues returned with the first ever photographs of two species of birds, the bronze parodia and the golden fronted bowerbird. Both of these birds were known only from a few specimens previously and together with a team from 60 Minutes, Bruce returned to the Foya Mountains in 2007 resulting in the first ever filming of several of the species, as well as encounters with an undescribed giant rat Whoa. and a tiny pygmy possum. Adorable. So I am honored to be a friend of this modern day Charles Darwin, you so could my. say, or George Wallace, perhaps. And to dialogue with him over a radio show is one of the wonderful beauties of life. He has so many incredible stories and he is really a walking naturalist notebook. So on that note, Bruce also writes nature pieces for the Washington Post, and this last month, his piece about the Florida grasshopper sparrow was entitled, Saving This Small Bird Might Cost Us Millions, But It Would Be Worth It. Bruce raises some really profound questions, questions that are increasingly imperative. So an excerpt from Bruce's article asks this question, the Florida grasshopper sparrow might be the most endangered bird in the continental United States and biologists are working hard to save it, and they think they're making progress, but their efforts raise a persistent question. Why go through that trouble? It's just a sparrow, after all. Sparrows are everywhere. Do we have enough of them as it is? So welcome, Bruce. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, so to begin, Bruce, why should we go through this trouble? Well, first, Soleil, I want to say hi. It's good. To, I haven't seen you since uh, my visit up to Dartmouth. Uh, what was that, a year ago or so? And, yes, indeed. Uh, Ramona, I haven't seen you in a few years. Long time through now. <laughs> Wouldn't I love to um, 
return to the beauty of Telluride. One of these days, I'm going to do that, I promise. The door is always open, my friend. And you, I know, Ramona, you especially have to come east to see the warbler migration, which uh, is actually starting. Oh. Just, uh, I had my first two migrant warblers yesterday, a yellow-throated warbler and Louisiana water thrush out at Sycamore Island on the Potomac. So something's happening here. I don't think uh, things are moving quite as quickly in Telluride. No. But it'll come. It'll come. Lovely. Yes. Uh, Bruce is a fan and aficionado of warblers, but more on that later. Yeah. And uh, so, Lane, you know, I've said so much now, I've forgotten what your question was. I know it was about the Florida uh, grasshopper sparrow, um, but you had a particular question. Why don't you repeat that for me? Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so just on the topic of why we should go through the trouble of of preserving species such as the Florida grasshopper sparrow. And, and you can give us some background on that species as well. Well, first of all, there, but for the grace of God, go we. So let's not, mm-hmm. <laughs> we let this Florida grasshopper sparrow go. Well, that's, remember, it's only a subspecies, uh, but it's still, um, you know, it's an important population. Uh, it's confined to a restricted area in Florida. Uh, you know, so it's a Florida specialty. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one of those canaries in the coal mine for us, right? We have to, we've been mandated by the Bible to take care of everything on this earth. We're, you know, we're here to protect, uh, not just to harvest. So I would say we have a moral imperative not to let any of those species or subspecies slip away on our watch. And of course, we know a few hundred have, in fact, slipped away, some through our hand, and we should feel ashamed and uh, embarrassed by that. We're not taking good care of planet Earth. I know we have astronomers and, and explorers and people like Elon Musk and others who look forward to starting colonies on maybe Jeffrey Bezos as well on Mars or on the moon. Uh, that's not going to take the place of planet Earth, which is, as you know, you live in one of the most beautiful places on the Earth. Um, the glory of the Earth is largely because of all the species. You know, without those species, it'd just be a bare Earth. So let's start by saving the little sparrow that nobody cares about and uh, work our way up. Indeed. So, Bruce, can you talk a little bit about the iconic Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich, who famously called species the, quote, rivets that hold together the spaceship that is Earth. And I really like this metaphor because it forms a strong and easily comprehensible picture in understanding extinction and collapse. So can you share a little bit with us that that significance? Well, Paul's a bird lover and a bird watcher, and I'm sure he very much would like to see the Florida grasshopper sparrow uh, exist and prosper, not uh, wither away. And I agree that his analogy of the rivets, um, we all know it. Just think, you know, if you just sort of start thinking about, wait a second, what am I wearing or what am I eating or what am I depending on 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 a daily basis? It's species. You know, it's not just a blueberry. That's a species. And those those are, you know, it's all those species of the world make up our habitat that we live in and we, we subsist on. So 
Yeah, some of them seem obscure. We often talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were no black flies or mosquitoes or other biting pests? No, they're species, actually. We don't even know what they're doing. They hardly know about us, or we hardly know about them. Yes, they annoy us sometimes. Yes. But also, you know how memorable being in a place in northern Ontario uh, with the, the Tennessee warblers and the Connecticut warblers singing and the black flies buzzing around your face that's part of the experience and you just have to buck up and take the good with the bad and all those species are important they're all god species and we should uh, we should care for them and uh, i don't have any problem with that myself and that's kind of a segue for me bruce i have a question for you speaking of black flies and pesky such things here in telluride as you know we had our own colony of gunnison's prairie dog and their DNA was analyzed a couple years ago and found to be a divergent population of uh, Colorado's Gunnison Prairie Dog. And our very own colony has since then collapsed. There's all kinds of different theories as to why, um, some plague, some weather related. But when the colony was once thriving, even here in our liberal nature-loving Telluride, there was and there still exists great animosity for the for this native species, the plankton of the prairie, uh, that provides, you know, the foundation of the food web there. And town folks curse them, call them out-of-control vermin. Um, and they've not been listed as an endangered species, even though they've been uh, asked to be, and they've been reduced down to 2% of their historic range. Um, Bruce, can you tell us, talk to us about the importance of these kind of less charismatic, it's not a panda bear, it's a pesky fly or a, or a or a prairie, Gunnison's prairie dog. How important are those guys? Well, I hardly think of a, a prairie dog as a lesser species. And uh, I, it just makes me sad to think of prairie dogs because I just think of the scores of years where humankind was bent on to actually wiping prairie dogs from the face of the earth because of perceived economic impacts they had on the cattle industry, which, of course, uh, is a sensitive issue in the West, less so in the East. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's some of us that still eat uh, beef in the East, uh, not me, but uh, others. Uh, a lot of it's grown out West. But I'm, yeah, I'm just sick and tired of uh, people who don't think. And uh, hey, hey. prairie dogs uh, are meant to be. They're part of our ecosystem, and they're glorious little creatures. And if you spend time watching them, I was uh, last spring I was out in North Dakota, a um, little north of you guys, at uh, Teddy Roosevelt National Park, and there's there's several wonderful colonies of black-tailed prairie dogs, and I spent hours oh. in their colony watching because it's a great place to see nature. They create this habitat. It fills with, you know, uh, magpies and coyotes and other species that we don't probably don't want to talk about too much because people don't like the beloved coyote. No, the badger. Um, all sorts and, and you know mountain bluebirds and 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 so many species. Uh, golden eagles coming over searching for a prairie dog. Um, I I personally because I'm not a cattle rancher and I'm not you know with my I'm not with my horse out punching dogies. Uh, worried about tripping in a prairie dog hole, but uh, I adore them. They're, you know, they are meant to be. They are so, so important. Um, 
And I, you know, when I think about prairie dogs, I also think about bison and, you know, the, the history of the bison in North America. And that's another sad story. They go, you know, they go hand in hand. They do. And I, but I'm hopeful that we'll eventually turn the corner on these crazy ideas. And like Ted Turner would like to do, you know, bring back the bison, replace the cow with bison and have bison burgers instead of cattle burgers and foster, you know, open range with bison and all the species of prairie dogs, including your adorable Gunnison prairie dog. And uh, it's going to be a better world. I sure am sharing that hope with you, Bruce. Thank you. So, Bruce, it's not going to happen this year. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not this decade, but it's going to, I think people, good people will continue to push and, you know, the world does change. It does change slowly. It tends to change generationally. People don't change, uh, but people come and go. So we replace one generation with another, and eventually we'll get there. Hopefully it's not, you know, it won't be too late when we get there. Certainly, certainly. So, Bruce, I'm a history lover as well as a naturalist, and I really, really appreciate your closing statement in that Washington Post article that addresses the oft-heard complaint that saving species cost so much money. Um, so I quote you, does anyone begrudge our federal government spending considerable sums to protect and exhibit the original copy of the Declaration of Independence in our national archives, or the fact that an F-35 fighter jet costs $100 million? So can you speak to the economics of the issue and perhaps the kind of greater philosophical question of placing a value upon nature? Absolutely. Uh, think of the declar—I I like to would think of the Declaration of Independence as part of our DNA. Very uh, much. Those initial coding of what what it, what it is to be America and to be an American. Now think of the Florida grasshopper sparrow, or the Gunnison uh, prairie dog, or the Gunnison sage grouse. Each one of those has a Declaration of Independence inside them. That's a, that's a sequence, a long, 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 long sequence of DNA and its counterpart RNA. Those we now know are the building blocks of the future. You know, it's not coal and it's not oil. It's not natural gas. It's DNA. Mm-hmm. And we're, of course, seeing the first, the first sort of first tentative steps with the J&J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, and, and the other vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, those are all built on that, on those, the genes, on those sequences of, of, uh, of nucleic acids in those creatures that we tap to uh, actually and all sorts of new things that we can't even conceive of at this point. So Throwing away a Gunnison uh, prairie dog or a Gunnison sage grouse or letting go with the Florida uh, 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 grasshopper sparrow may be throwing away our future. So let's think about the future. So many things. You know, when Audubon and Teddy Roosevelt collected specimens of birds, uh, that was an old-fashioned thing to do. People don't do that so much anymore. They're in museum now. Those specimens of birds collected in in the early 1800s and late 1800s by people like Roosevelt and Audubon are now being tapped for their DNA. And the, the DNA coding 
again, has all sorts of purposes, many of which we don't even know. But um, And when they collected it, they didn't even know of the existence of DNA. So, mm-hmm. again, um, all these packets of DNA out there that some people don't like and don't care about could be uh, the great hope of our future. Very, very profound. Thank you, Bruce. So, Bruce's one million species are now threatened with extinction, and we are amidst what is being called the sixth extinction, man-caused, of course. What gives you hope, and what do you think needs to be done at the individual and the policy levels? Well, woman-caused as well, but... Uh, <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> Not just, it wasn't just me, but you guys too. So we all, we're all a little bit guilty here. Um, I, the fact that uh, Elizabeth Colbert's book titled The Sixth Extinction was a bestseller, that's a good sign because people are taking notice. And uh, voters are taking notice. Uh, we've, you know, we've brought on a new administration who have been quickly penning new executive orders, mm-hmm. many of which have to do with the environment. Uh, it's got to make you hopeful. Um, you have to be hopeful. Think of the past a little bit. Think of actually... If, if you go back and read some of Edwin Waitiel's books he wrote that he wrote in the late 50s, uh, um, North, North with the Spring, a very famous book that won the, the Pulitzer Prize about spring migration. Um, if you go back and read that book, the beginning of the book is very depressing. Pollution is on, was rampant in the, along the East Coast. Pol- the cities were dark and polluted, filled with coal dust and, and, and just horrible, horrible things. The rivers ran black. And you forget that, you know, when you think about that, some of these old books, you forget the bad part, you remember the happy part. But in fact, he was documenting how bad things were back in the 50s. Well, in fact, because of the, some of the work of Republicans like uh, Nixon, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, things like that were done. And we actually, our country, the environment, especially in the cities, is much better than it was, you know, 50 years or 50 or 60 years ago. And then you think back, you think of Rachel Carson and you think of uh, DDT and the depredations of those uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons. And you think of that the bald eagle and the osprey were on the brink and the peregrine falcon was disappearing in the, in the eastern United States. And now today you can see all those birds. I saw I saw a bald eagle today when I was hitting the tennis ball with my son Andrew, in the you know in the back, in the playground in the back there. There's a bald eagle. It nests within a mile of my house. Lovely. Well, back in 1957, not a single, or 1967, I should say, not a single bald eagle was it within 50 miles of my house. So things, you know, we were able to turn things around within some endangered, some very very charismatic endangered species. So we basically proved the model. We, when we, you know, pull up our socks and get our act together, we can actually get some things done. And it's often not until sort of the eleventh hour that we do it, but we do it and we get it right. Think of the again, the the whooping crane. Think of the the, the uh, uh, California condor, which had to be brought in the last what was it? Last seven individuals were brought into captivity, and now more than seventy five have been released and are out in the wild. They're back. They're back. It's, it's fantastic. So humankind is capable when they're organized and when they're, you know, got their thinking caps on, they're capable of doing great things. So even though, you know, we have a lot, we've had a lot of disappointments lately with humankind, 
I still think, um, you know, we've got seeds of greatness. And when our backs are against the wall, we can do the right thing. I, I concur. And kind of segue from a couple things you were just uh, mentioning. Um, we have your latest beautiful book here on our coffee table, North on a Wing. And um, it entails oh, you. Oh, by the way, I'm going to interrupt you. I, I've done five books since then. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I haven't been keeping up, Bruce. But, uh, shame on you. Yeah, seriously. So, um, but that book is the last one that we got from you. So we're sitting here. Uh, Let's put it that way. And um, I haven't been following closely enough, but you, in that you journey um, following warblers in their migratory pathway up the Mississippi Valley, and you are kind of emulating with your own special twist, uh, Teal's, I, I hope I pronounced that right, his journey that you talked about on uh, North with the Spring. And in your journeys, you meet people and you uh, imbibe in the culture of the place where the birds you're watching exist. And do you have a favorite story of a group of people or individual or organization that is doing, it's right now doing the right thing that you're talking about and making really excellent steps towards conserving our warblers and our prairie dogs, et cetera, et cetera? I was camped at Caddo Lake State Park Caddo Lake is a big, uh, giant, bizarre lake filled with uh, primeval cypress. Mm. Uh, it's right on the board of northern Louisiana and, and east Texas. It's in the middle of nowhere. And it's got a National Wildlife Refuge attached to it. And I was camped in the state park, which is right next to the Wildlife Refuge. And uh, one morning I got up and there was Mia Brown, who was the park naturalist, and she was organizing a bird walk. And uh, she, was, she had about nine people with her, several families who had never been bird watching before. And um, I went with a, a sort of junior naturalist along with her. And it was just, you know, when I thought of the work that Mia was doing, it was just, it was basically what I call God's work. Mm. And um, she was, you know, she was showing people, basically letting the scales fall from the eyes, showing beautiful a prothonotary warbler, or an indigo bunning, or uh, a painted bunning, and these bird people didn't even know these these birds existed. And she had a field guide with her, and she had a telescope, and they were just so excited to know, you know, they, this was their big, they were they were camping there at the state park too and this was a, sort of their big weekend away from home mm -hmm. these were working class people poor people uh who couldn't afford to know about birds and she was showing them you know that birds are out there and they're for free and they're for all of us and they're in the state park and they're also in the national wildlife refuge and it's you know it's not just fishing for bass there are things that you can do besides that and you can have a heck of a lot of fun and i really want to salute her and, uh, you know, there, there are thousands of her across the country, people like yourselves, I salute you guys, you. who care about nature and, you know, do all sorts of things on behalf of nature. And we do it because we love nature. And there are a lot of us. It's like a, it's like a whole army of us out there. And because of those people who write letters to Congress, or they might write letters to the State House who might, uh, might have a protest about a prairie dog, uh, they change the world. 
So that makes me happy to see those people. And of course, they're wonderful. It's wonderful to spend time with people like that. And uh, it's, you know, it makes me hopeful for the world. Wow. You make us hopeful for the world, Bruce. You've been an inspiration to our family and uh, to Soleil and to me. And we want to thank you for carrying that torch of conservation and education and goodwill towards nature and man. Thank you, Bruce. And I want to say the same goes back to you guys. I, I feel the same. You guys are, have done so much for nature and so much for your community. And you guys care so much that I, I really, I salute you. And you are listening to Kodo's Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna. Oh. We have just spoken with Bruce Beeler. He is the research associate um, of the Bird Division of the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of Natural History. Thank you so much, Bruce, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure. As always, our walking naturalist notebook, Bruce Beeler, Dr. Bruce Beeler. Happy spring all. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, KOTO. Thank you, Ben Kerr. And thank you, Telluride Arts District.